you've probably heard the cliche that says imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. Essentially, it means that copying someone else's behavior, their style, or ideas is a way of showing admiration and respect for that person. It's a proverb that expresses the idea that imitating someone is a sincere and genuine way of praising them. Now, it's become a cliche because of the fact that today, imitation can be considered to be a cheap copy, a, a fake um, or a, a way of mocking somebody. But that's not the, uh, the origin of that phrase. In fact, the origin can be traced back to the early 19th century when English writer Charles Colton wrote in his book, Lacken, or Many Things in Few Words Addressed to Those Who Think, which was published in 1820, wrote, imitation is the sincerest of flattery. However, the concept behind that phrase dates back even further. It actually dates back to the second century, a thought by uh, Roman Emperor Marcus Aurelius, who said, you should consider that imitation is the most acceptable part of worship, and that the gods had much rather mankind should resemble than flatter them. I think it's especially appropriate to think of this concept of imitation as an act of worship because of the fact that we who profess ourselves to be Christians, followers of Jesus Christ, strive to imitate his example, his characteristics. One of the ways we find that we learn as humans is through the process of imitation. Imitation is the act of copying or reproducing behavior, style, or ideas of someone else. It is a natural and instinctive way of acquiring new skills and knowledge. For example, think of how a baby or children learn to communicate. A baby imitates the sounds and gestures of its parents and caregivers and gradually learns to speak and understand words. They also imitate the expressions and the emotions of others and learn to recognize and respond to different feelings. Another example is how children in athletics might mimic the actions and habits of their favorite sports players. I grew up playing baseball, and I loved, uh, when, when I was pitching, uh, mimicking the odd wind-ups of Hideo Nomo and uh, Orlando Hernandez. Those are the, the two pitchers up there on the screen. Um, mimicking their wind-up, mimicking their running style, their batting stance. But a child might also imitate the attitude, the confidence, or the leadership of a baseball player or other sport um, that they aspire to be like. See, imitation is a powerful and effective way of learning and growing. However, imitation can also be dangerous and destructive depending on who or what we imitate. And that's what the Apostle Paul urges us to be careful of and discerning about in our imitation. We're continuing our series, Whole and Holy, where we've been walking through the Apostle Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus. And the vision set before us is clear. Maturity in Christ, 
or healthy in God, robust in love, finding wholeness in the pursuit of holiness. Paul's letter urges us to have a spiritual life that impacts every aspect of our being. Physical, emotional, spiritual, relational, behavioral, vocational, financial, financial, and on and on. Paul is convinced that the way of life that God wants for his people is not just about good publicity for God, but it also leads to a healthy, whole living. Chapter 4 of Ephesians, which Amy started in last week, marks the beginning of a transition in Paul's letter from the ways in which God creates and inhabits the church to the ways in which we now live appropriately as the church that God creates and inhabits. In other words, Paul begins to shift from laying the theological groundwork to a more practical and ethical example. The Apostle Paul urges the Ephesian believers to live in a way that is worthy of their calling as God's children. He contrasts their old way of life, which is characterized by futility, darkness, ignorance, with the new way of life, which is marked by truth, righteousness, holiness, and love. He calls on them to put off their old self and to put on the new self, which is created in the image of God. He calls us to be imitators of God. And so our text for this morning, we'll be looking at Ephesians 4, 17 through chapter 5, verse 2. And we're going to be walking through, looking at six examples in which Paul calls us to be imitators of God. The first in which tells us we are to imitate God by speaking the truth. Looking at chapter 4, verses 17 through 25. So I tell you this, and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. That, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. Paul is warning the Ephesians not to walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. Now, when Paul speaks of the Gentiles, he's not here referring specifically to an ethnic group, a racial group, a cultural group. Rather, he is speaking to the concept of the worldly culture that the Ephesians see themselves, um, see surrounding them. He's describing the, this, these worldly people as darkened in their understanding, 
as alienated from the life of God, as ignorant, hard-hearted, callous, and greedy. And he reminds the Ephesians that they have learned that to live in Christ is to live differently. That this was the way in which they formerly walked, but they have been now taught to put on the new self. And he applies this principle to their speech. And he commands them to put away that falsehood and to speak truth to one another. And he gives two reasons for this. First, he reminds them that they are members of one body. They are members of one another. And second, because God is a God of truth. So what does it mean to speak truthfully? Does it mean that we never tell a lie even if the truth hurts? Does it mean living life without any filter whatsoever? Philosophers and experts in moral ethics have written books upon books on the topic. But that's not really what Paul is addressing here. Paul's not saying that we must go out and live with 100% transparency and vulnerability with everyone we meet. In fact, he's also not saying we need to be 100% transparent and vulnerable with every other Christ follower. Sorry, I don't have to stand up here and tell you all of my unfiltered, deepest, darkest secrets. Likewise, I don't have the right to come up to any of you after the worship service this morning and demand that you tell me your deepest and darkest secrets. Paul is speaking about how we interact together as a community. He's speaking to the purpose of being truthful to one another. We speak the truth to one another for the purpose of building up the individual and building up the community. If you've been around a church community for an extended amount of time, you've probably heard the phrase, speak the truth in love. I want to share some of the common myths that you uh, may have um, or others may have experienced on the idea of speaking the truth in love. And it may seem obvious or that these aren't myths at all, but when you think about how this is often put in practice, it's apparent that it might be helpful to address some of these myths. The first of which, speaking the truth in love is easy. In fact, it can be difficult to speak the truth in love, especially when it comes to sensitive topics or when the other person might not be receptive. Speaking the truth in love requires courage, compassion, patience, and wisdom. The second myth, speaking the truth in love gives you a free pass to say whatever is on your mind. Speaking the truth in love does not mean that we are able to be rude or insensitive. It's important for us to be mindful of the other person's feelings and to deliver the truth in a way that is respectful and loving. Another myth is that speaking the truth in love will end in agreement. Where the reality is part of speaking the truth in love is being willing to disagree with the other person respectfully. It's also being willing to challenge them to think about things from a different perspective, but also being willing to be challenged yourself in your own perspective. And the fourth myth is that speaking the truth in love is only important in close relationships. 
Speaking the truth in love is actually important in all of our relationships, whether they're close or distant. Um, it's also important in our professional and in our social interaction. Now, there probably should be some relationship established uh, in order for you to be able to speak the truth to somebody. Because if you have no relationship with someone, how will confronting them with an issue uh, be received? Um, the importance of having a relationship established will make an effort of speaking the truth in love to be received in a way in which it is intended. And so here are a few tips that we might be able to um, have in, um, in keeping in mind what it means to speak the truth in love. And the first is that we should be mindful of our intent. Are we speaking the truth in order to see growth and restoration to another person, or are we trying to tear a person down? Are we trying to control a person? Are we trying to make sure that they are on our side? The second is to be specific about your concerns. Avoid making generalizations. Avoid making accusations. Another is to be respectful of another person's feelings. To avoid using harsh language or a harsh tone of voice. Be willing to listen to the other person's perspective and recognize that they may have valid reasons for their actions or beliefs. And finally, be patient and understanding, recognizing that it may take time for another person to accept the truth. Speaking the truth in love is not often easy, but it is a powerful way to build trust, to strengthen relationships, and create a more loving and compassionate world. Next, Paul calls us to imitate God by controlling our anger. Verses 26 and 27. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. Now notice first here what Paul isn't saying. He's not saying, don't be angry. Paul is acknowledging here anger is a natural emotion, but he cautions the Ephesians to not let their anger turn into sinful behavior. He instructs them, don't let the sun go down on their anger. Which, by the way, a quick sidebar, is that this verse was never intended to be marriage advice. I can't tell you how many times in the months leading up to our wedding day or in the year in our, our first year of marriage, that people would say to me or to Sarah, make sure you never go to bed angry at each other. We found relatively early in our marriage, and this might not be the case for everybody, sometimes sleeping on it was far more productive than trying to resolve everything in the moment when we're both tired and cranky. Paul's not saying don't go to bed angry. Rather, he is imploring that they should work to resolve their conflicts quickly, and peacefully. Now, why is this important? He tells us in verse 27, he warns them not to give the devil a foothold. 
meaning that they should not let their anger lead them to bitterness, resentment, or revenge. When we allow conflict or anger to go unresolved over a long period of time, we begin to allow false narratives to creep into our minds. And in those situations, we often are led to make the problem bigger than it was, to think uh, less of the person that we have conflict in. And as the time goes on and on and on, it is harder for us to see clearly because we have allowed bitterness, resentment, or thoughts of revenge to creep in. And so Paul is warning us that anger can be a destructive force that can harm themselves and harm others, and that God is a God of peace. Next, we see that we are to imitate God by working honestly and generously. Verse 28 says, Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands, that they may have something to share with those in need. Paul is addressing the issue of stealing, which was a common practice at that time. It's still a common practice. And he commands the Ephesians to stop stealing from others, stop taking from others. This was something that you did in your old self, but now that you are a part of the church, this behavior needs to stop. Not only is he saying that, he's telling them that they need to work with their own hands meaning they should be earning their living by honest and honorable means. But it's not just about honest living for the purpose of uh, their own uh, wealth, their own um, self-sufficiency. He is telling them that they are to work so that they may have something to share with anyone in need, meaning they should be using the resources not only for themselves, but for the betterment of the community around them. We like to compartmentalize our lives. Monday through Friday is my work life or my school life. And Sunday is, is the day for my, my church life. And the two don't really have anything to do with each other. And I think at times the broader church has been guilty of contributing to this mindset by not speaking to the value and purpose of our work. Paul will address this uh, at, at a later point in, uh, in Ephesians, and there'll be a, a message on that uh, in the coming weeks. But here, Paul is speaking to the importance of work, that it has a purpose in the kingdom of God, and that our work is not just about building on our own wealth, but it is to be a benefit to others, that the product of our work would be, to, uh, would be useful and allow us to live generously as our God is generous. Next, he tells us to imitate God by speaking graciously. Verses 29 and 30. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Back when I was in, in college at IU, I would play these small coffee house shows, and one of the songs that I would regularly cover is by Dave Barnes, and here's the lyrics of the chorus. The chorus goes, I'd rather have sticks and stones, broken bones, than the words you say to me, because I know that bruises heal and cuts will seal, but your words beat the life 
out of me. The words that we speak matter. Now, this is a similar concept of speaking the truth in love. Here, Paul is moving from the negative to the positive aspects of speech. And he's instructing the Ephesians to let no corrupting talk come from their mouths. Meaning that they should avoid any words that are harmful, hurtful, or unwholesome. He tells them to speak only what is good for building up, as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Meaning they should use their words to encourage, to comfort, and bless others. He implies that speech is a powerful tool that can either honor or dishonor God. In Matthew 12, um, Jesus, in his teaching, uh, gives us an indication that the words that we speak Uh, uh, that the words that we speak uh, can be an indication of what we believe in our hearts. When he says, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Now, Paul gives us a powerful motivation for this. In verse 30, he says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, meaning they shouldn't offend the Spirit who dwells within them. It is the Holy Spirit that seals us for our redemption. And so the Holy Spirit plays a vital role in our transformation into the likeness of Christ. Paul exhorts us, going back to verse 24, when he says to put off the old self and put on the new self, created after the likeness of God, which is a process that can only happen by the power of the Holy Spirit. You see, it is the Holy Spirit that convicts us of sin and leads us to repentance. It is the Holy Spirit that empowers us to live in a way that is pleasing to God. The Holy Spirit guides us in our decision-making and helps us to grow in our knowledge and understanding of God. It is the Holy Spirit that empowers us to live our lives in a way that is pleasing to God. And we cannot live a holy life without the Holy Spirit's help. And so in Ephesians 4.30, Paul is telling us not to grieve the Holy Spirit meaning we, need to, we should avoid sin and disobedience, which quenches the Spirit's fire. And when we yield to the Holy Spirit's leading, we allow ourselves to be transformed into the likeness of Christ. The Holy Spirit is our partner in the process of becoming more like Jesus. And we in, when we invite him to work in our lives, he will transform us from the inside out. Fifth, Paul is calling us to imitate God by being kind and forgiving. He says, get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Paul summarizes his exhortations by, lifting, uh, by listing uh, six vices that should be put away from the Ephesians. Bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, slander, and malice. And he contrasts these vices with virtues that should be put on. Kindness, tenderheartedness, forgiveness, compassion, mercy, and love. These virtues are all related to interpersonal harmony and reconciliation. And they are reflective of a new life in Christ. Paul gives us the ultimate example and reason for this when he reminds us, as Christ forgave you, meaning that they should imitate God's grace 
and mercy towards them in Christ by extending that grace and mercy to others. Sixth, Paul tells us to imitate God by walking in love and light. Chapter 5, verses 1 and 2 tell us, Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Paul concludes this section by calling the Ephesians to be imitators of God as beloved children, meaning they should follow God's example as his dearly loved daughters and sons. He defines for them what it means to imitate God and to walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And so he's calling them to live in a way that is characterized by selfless and sacrificial love just as Christ did for them on the cross. And so throughout all of this, Paul is challenging the Ephesians to live in a way that is worthy of their calling as God's children. By imitating God in their speech, in their anger, in their work, their generosity, and their relationships. He reminds them of the contrast between the old way of life and the new way of life and urges them to put, on the, uh, to put off of the old self and to put on the new self. He calls them to be imitators of God as beloved children, to walk in love and light. So take a moment now and consider your answer to the following questions. Who or what am I imitating in my daily life? How can I imitate God in my speech, in my work, in my generosity, and my relationships? And how can I walk in love and light as Christ loved me and gave himself up for me? Well, this morning we have learned that one of the ways we grow in Christ-likeness is by imitating God in our lives. We have seen how God has called us to be his children and how he has given us his example and grace in Christ. We've learned how to apply God's word to our speech, our work, our generosity and relationships. But there is another way that we can grow in Christ-likeness, and that's by participating in communion. Communion is a sacred and symbolic act that reminds us of what Christ has done for us on the cross. It is also a way of expressing our love and gratitude to God and our fellowship and unity with one another. When we take of the bread and the cup, we are imitating Christ in his obedience and sacrifice. We are proclaiming his death until he comes again And we are also imitating Christ in his resurrection and hope, celebrating his victory over sin and death. We also are imitating Christ in his service and humility, following his command to love one another as he loved us. Communion is not just a ritual or tradition. 
It is a powerful and meaningful way of growing in Christ-likeness. It is a way of imitating God in love and in light. At City Church, we believe that the communion elements are open to any who have professed faith in Christ Jesus. So as we prepare to partake of communion, let us first examine our hearts, thanking God for his mercy and forgiveness. Let us also pray for one another and seek reconciliation and praise God for his goodness and faithfulness. Let us also look forward to his coming and future glory. Let us pray. Almighty God, we do give you thanks for the example of Christ Jesus. We give you thanks that you offer to us these elements, the bread and the cup that remind us of your service and humility, that remind us of your love and your mercy, that remind us of the future resurrection and hope, that you promise restoration, that you have defeated death once and for all. And so, Lord, as we prepare to um, partake of these elements, may you use the bread and the cup to nourish us spiritually, that we would grow in Christ's likeness, that you would equip us by the power of the Holy Spirit to be imitators of Christ in all that we do.